Marty from Ohio. For those who may hesitate to vote this week, thinking armed poll watchers and tactical gear may be at drop boxes or polling places, be confident. Whether 18 or 80, it is your right to vote. Let no one take that right from you or intimidate you. I dare them to step in front of me. Get the hell out of my way would be my response while I copied their license plate, went inside to report to an election official, and then called our local police. It's against the law to intimidate at a polling place or at an election. Be strong. Hold your own. You are in the right. Please vote. More than 40 million people have already voted, according to the United States Election Project. But many Americans are still planning to cast their ballots on Election Day. Voters and poll workers alike are getting ready. And for some, that means dealing with threats of violence. According to the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, over half of election workers surveyed say they fear for their safety and the safety of their colleagues. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the FBI have issued threat advisories warning of potential violence toward election officials and political figures. We'll get into what you can expect at the polls and answer some of your questions about voter intimidation. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's start our discussion by welcoming our guests. Joining us is David Becker. He's the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. Also with us is Sean Morales-Doyle. He's the director of the Voting Rights Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. Thank you both for joining us. David, I want to start with you. That survey that revealed that half of election workers surveyed by the Brennan Center for Justice fear for their safety. Could you put this election into context? Have we seen anything like this before, this level of threats? No, we've never seen anything like this before. It's completely new. It's not worse than it's ever been before. It's never been before that, you know, our neighbors, our members of our community, our family members who might volunteer to be poll workers or who might work in election offices, have been under a constant barrage of threats and harassment for two years, not for doing a bad job, but for doing a fantastic job, for somehow managing the highest turnout in American history in the middle of a global pandemic and having their work scrutinized like never before and upheld by over 60 courts all over the country. And as we sit here today, two years after the 2020 election, there still has not been a shred of evidence presented to any court or law enforcement agency anywhere in the country that there was a problem with the election. Um, so they're tired, uh, exhausted from all of those threats. But that being said, they're still doing this work. The vast majority of them have stayed on the job. They are 
managing the turnout. They're managing the early voting turnout, which is a record for a midterm. As you noted, 40 million people mm-hmm. have already voted. We might hit as many as 60 million by the time all the mail ballots are counted. This is something that has been talked about. President Biden said this about the uptick in threats and political violence last week. We don't settle our differences in America with a riot, a mob, or a bullet, or a hammer. We settle them peaceably at the battle, at the battle box, the ballot box. We have to be honest with ourselves, though. We have to face this problem. We can't turn away from it. We can't pretend it's just going to solve itself. There's an alarming rise in the number of our people in this country condoning political violence or simply remaining silent because silence is complicity. Sean Morales-Doyle, let me turn to you. I I wonder what you heard in the president's speech and and how significant it was, it is, that the president addressed political violence in those remarks. Um, I think it's it's quite significant that we are having this conversation right now. I think obviously after January 6th, um, you know, we live in a different environment in terms of the potential for political violence. And I think it's important that we um, that we talk about that concern um, and, you know, reject it as um, part of American politics and the way that our democracy works. But I also think it's important to balance that um, as people are going out to the polls tomorrow, that people know that while there may be higher concerns than we've had in the past, um, the vast majority of Americans are going to go to the polls and have a perfectly typical, um, uneventful, pleasant experience voting. Um, we don't want this conversation to, you know, have the effect of discouraging voters. I appreciate what you're saying there. And I'm going to read a tweet that we just got from Maria. She writes, I hope you emphasize how hard all election personnel are working for everyone to be safe. I hope your program does not encourage people to stay home from fear. David, at this time, millions of people have voted safely and conveniently. I did it a couple of days ago. There was no way to get in. It was a very easy process. How how big of an issue has voter intimidation been in this election cycle so far when you look at early voting in particular? Yeah, Maria and Sean are exactly right. The simple facts are that while we're seeing some sporadic episodes, the episode around drop boxes in Maricopa County, Arizona, for instance, we have to recognize that was only a couple of locations in a county where there were hundreds of places where someone could drop off a ballot. The election deniers and extremists would like nothing more than for voters to be scared of voting. And so this is almost performative in some ways. What we're actually seeing of the, from those 40 million people who've already voted, from the probably 80 million or so more who will vote by the time we're done with this election, they're going to find that they're voting in, a, in an environment that's completely safe and secure, that's convenient and familiar. Most of the places have very familiar and similar situations as they voted in in the past. And so voters are going to have a really good experience. I mean, normal things like lines, if you decide to vote first thing in the morning or at the end of the day on election day, that happens every year. That's a very, very normal thing. But Mm -hmm. voters should know election officials have got this. I've been talking to election officials all over the country. They're prepared for every possible contingency, and they have set up sites that are going to be convenient and also really importantly safe. David, a man was recently charged with attempting to kidnap Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, Nancy Pelosi after breaking into her home and assaulting her husband. We mentioned that U.S. security officials have issued warnings about a rise in threats against political figures in this country. How do you react to what we've seen uh, in these recent weeks and what's happening there, the warnings that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're what we're seeing is that 
the uh, election officials and government officials are trying to strike a balance, and that's really important. Clearly, there are extremists out there, and there are episodes that are really concerning, whether it's the attack on the Speaker's family or whether it's the incident in Maricopa County, Arizona. And to some degree, the extremists want us to see that. The extremists want us to be afraid of participating in our democracy. And so election officials and government officials, law enforcement are appropriately indicating that they're vigilant about this and they're ready for this, but they're trying to strike that balance as well. That readiness is one of the key aspects of security and safety. If you look at Maricopa County, Arizona, for instance, where you know tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of ballots have already been cast, they're really taking care of the voters. They're making sure that there's a secure system out there. The um, intimidating behavior has been stopped. Mm-hmm. There's, we're seeing this just nationwide, that voters are voting in absolute security. We have hit a record for early voting for any midterm election. We blew past the previous record of 2018, which was record high turnout overall. We blew past that a couple of days ago. So it's, it's really remarkable. Voters are voting with their feet, and that's inspiring. Sean Morales-Doyle, of course, fueling some of this is, is misinformation, and I wonder if you could kind of characterize what that misinformation looks like surrounding going to the polls and casting ballots both early and, and on Election Day. Certainly, um, we've already mentioned a number of times this um, intimidation happening in Arizona, for instance, and I think that that was absolutely the product of myths and disinformation. Um, the you know There are these lies that have been told about mail voting and about the use of drop boxes, and they are being used to recruit people and motivate them to go out and engage in drop box for surveillance and intimidate voters. Um, I think many of the issues that we uh, see coming up in our elections in 2022 that we haven't seen before are the direct result of lies and conspiracy theories um, and misinformation, mistakes um, that came out of the 2020 election and that have been um, you know, spread uh, as a way of, of motivating people in 2022. And I want to bring in Yvonne Winget Sanchez. She's a politics reporter for The Washington Post covering voting in Arizona. Yvonne, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I early voted on Thursday, and I was really happy to see long, long lines. So regardless of the outcome of the election, I was just very pleased to see how many people were there, and I was happy to wait about 45 minutes to vote. If on last week the DOJ weighed in on an Arizona lawsuit about election monitoring, the League of Women Voters of Arizona recently sued several right-wing groups after their members showed up at drop boxes to watch voters take photos, even record video of them. Sometimes the vote watchers were carrying guns or wearing ballistic vests. What can you tell us about what's been happening at these drop-off boxes in Arizona? Sure. So here in Maricopa County, we have two outdoor drop boxes, one in downtown Phoenix and one in uh, a suburban area of, of Metro Phoenix known as Mesa. And earlier in um Uh, early voting, there were organized bands of essentially vigilantes, some of them dressed in tactical gear, some of them carrying guns, um, recording people who were dropping off their ballots at at these steel drop boxes. It's typically been a pretty routine method uh, of voting, but post-2000 mules, um, which is a, which is a movie, I should say, a sort of propaganda. Which is a movie. Falsehood. Which is a movie. Media. 
Correct. Um, that was born here in Arizona. Um, you have these things that are the center of this conspiracy um, now rocketing towards uh, the front of the line when it comes to um, you know problems here in Maricopa County with early voting. And so some people are videotaping voters. They're taking pictures of their license plates. Um, some of that information has been referred to uh, a, a group that has spread falsehoods about the 2020 election through the vote. Other pieces of information have landed on the internet. They're on Reddit. And it's been very concerning for officials here in Maricopa County and voters. We've had um, more than a dozen complaints um, about these drop boxes sent to the Secretary of State's office. Some of them have been referred to federal and state law enforcement officials. Um, and voters are just really concerned about not just their safety, but what happens with this information when it ends up in the hands of, of some of these groups? What happens when it ends up on the internet? When I mentioned the Department of Justice has gotten involved here and issued a statement of interest about 50 pages in, in length, what, what has the Department of Justice said here? What's the, the argument that they're making, uh, which I gather is sort of pinned to the, the Voting Rights Act and its protections? Sure. I mean, they're trying to balance, you know, as is a federal judge, um, First Amendment rights with the right to freely and safely vote. And um, they weighed in on a, on a case here involving these drop boxes, and they uh, essentially say that some of this activity is just not legal. And um, they tried to lead the groundwork for a federal judge to sort of strike a balance between protecting um, some of these uh, observers' First Amendment rights and federal law prohibiting voter intimidation. Um, it was a, a, a really important moment uh, because this is the first time this cycle that we've seen the Department of Justice weigh in in such an aggressive way uh, on voter intimidation issues. And so clearly they're watching very closely as are, uh, as are others. Sean Morales-Doyle, I want to turn to you and, and just get your perspective on what the Voting Rights Act tells us about how to deal with voter intimidation like this. Sure. So Section 11B of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is one of a number of federal laws that prohibit prohibit voter intimidation. Um, the Voting Rights Act's prohibition is maybe the strongest because, among other things, it doesn't require uh, proof of an intent to intimidate. So the question isn't whether or not the person is trying to intimidate voters. The question is whether or not they're having the effect of intimidating voters. Um, this, as I said, is only one of a number of prohibitions under federal law. Um, there is an, an earlier provision from a, an earlier Civil Rights Act, and in fact, anti-intimidation law, um, federal anti-intimidation law goes back to 1871, um, when Congress was responding to the terror that the Ku Klux Klan was um, imposing on black voters, largely in the South. So um, we have had laws against this for a very long time in the United States. Um, we have a number of them at the federal level. We also have them at the state level. The states all in prohibit voter intimidation and have many, many other safeguards in place to protect against voter intimidation by regulating other parts of the election process. And I think it's really important that voters know that, that um, intimidation is illegal. It is a crime. 
Um, and there are a lot of um, both law enforcement and other advocates like the folks at Protect Democracy that brought that suit in Arizona that are watching and um, are ready to respond and ensure that voters have a safe experience when they go to vote. Ivana, I want to ask you how voting laws in Arizona have changed since the 2020 election. A moment ago, we were talking about sort of the uh, rich history in Arizona of voting early. It's incredibly popular, as, as I understand it. What changed after 2020? One of the biggest things that I'm watching that changed is an automatic uh, recount law, which was intended to make people feel much more confident in the final results. And instead, what uh, it has the potential to do is um, give the perception that results are not final until after these automatic recounts take place. That means, uh, at least in Maricopa County, we could be uh, sort of in the election mode until December 30th, which is going to prolong things, is going to give the impression to a lot of folks that uh, results could change, even though we know that recounts very, very rarely change results. And uh, people are going to feel as though, you know, this is a, a too lengthy of a process, a ridiculous process, and that the results can't be trusted. So that's one big change. Um, looking ahead, uh, depending on what the state legislature looks like, you know, there could be a lot of restrictions enacted by the Republican uh, legislature. They've tried to push a lot of restrictive uh, laws in the past. They have not yet been successful, but should uh, Carrie Lake and uh, a number of, of Republicans down the ballot be elected, we could see an end to early voting, which uh, is very, very popular and the, is the overwhelming uh, method that people use to cast votes. So that recount law is going to be going to be the biggest thing that I think is going to cause a lot of problems and that a lot of people here are going to be watching closely. Yvonne, you're talking to election officials, um, talking to voters. What about poll workers? What are they telling you about how they feel going into Election Day? They feel pretty good. I mean, uh, some of them have already gotten a close-up view of what this looks like, and they're super familiar with the process. They see all the checks and balances and all the rules and um, the folks that I've talked to don't really have anxieties about this at all, and they're actually happy to participate in the system. A lot of them maybe had questions about it as a result of 2020, and now that they're on the inside, um, they see how difficult it is to cheat mm. and steal and rig. And uh, I think a lot of them um, are just uh, really happy to participate in, in a process. That was Yvonne Winget-Sanchez. She's a politics reporter at The Washington Post. She's covering voting in Arizona. Yvonne, thanks very much for being with us. We're discussing election security and what you can expect at the polls this week. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on election security with this message from Caroline in South Carolina. I early voted. Um, unfortunately, there was a gentleman behind me in line who decided it would be best to talk about politics and was talking about Trump, and it was just absolutely ridiculous, the conversations that they were having. I turned around and politely asked them if they could find something else to talk about. That would be great, you know, that that just wasn't right to talk about politics in line to vote. Of course, I was infringing upon their free speech and their rights, and I was only saying that because I was a liberal who disagreed with them in their eyes. Um, 
honestly, it was really awful, but there was one great lady who thanked me on the way out for saying something to them. I'm just curious, is that really allowed? Are you really allowed to talk about politics and lying? Like, why do people think that's okay? David Becker, let me put Caroline's question to you. I know there are rules about pamphleteering. What about that question that she raises? Yeah, generally, every state has rules against what's called electioneering, which is any kind of um, uh, politics discussion advocating for a particular candidate or political party within a certain range. That range can be from 50 feet to 150 feet, depending upon the state. And so that's generally improper. It's, um, again, free speech rights are not being infringed upon if there are limits on electioneering activity uh, within that period of time. Whether that constitutes intimidation, that I think most would agree that's probably on the very, very low end at, at best with regard to intimidation. But it's um, generally um, restricted in, in every state. Um, there, you, we'll, we'll all remember, any of us who voted in person in most places will realize we walk up to the polling place and there's usually a bunch of campaign activists and signs up to a certain point and then they stop. Mm-hmm. And that's what that line usually is. Usually you'll have to walk through that. Many people don't really like walking through all of that campaign activity, but it's just kind of a fact of life and that's generally not considered intimidating. Um, once we get to the point of um, uh, aggressively confronting individuals, getting physical with them, taking photographs of them, videoing them, making them feel comfortable when they're actually in the act of voting, when they're actually marking their ballot in a polling place, standing too close to them. Those are all activities that have been viewed as intimidating in the past. The, Sean, this gets to the question I want to ask next. We've been talking a lot about voter intimidation. I'm very curious if there's kind of a universally accepted or agreed upon definition of what voter intimidation is. Well, the law doesn't define voter intimidation sort of based on specific acts. Um, and that's for good reason, because, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that someone might make a voter feel intimidated. And if we limited the law to just cover very specific things like taking pictures of license plates, et cetera, um, then we wouldn't be prohibiting any other creative way that someone might come up with for intimidating voters. And so the law speaks very generally. And um, as I mentioned before, what federal law says is that the question isn't whether or not the person um, doing the intimidating is trying to intimidate the voter. The question is whether the voter feels intimidated. And so really the answer is that um, voter intimidation is anything that intimidates voters. Um, You know, I I agree with um, David's point that, you know, there are some things that may be sort of uh, in a gray area. There may be places where um, what we're talking about is just um, run-of-the-mill electioneering rather than intimidation. Um, But that's why states also have many of these rules that David's referencing to govern um, the kinds of conduct that might cross the line into intimidation. So states, you know, it's illegal to intimidate voters, whether you're inside the electioneering zone or outside the electioneering zone. That's not an intimidation zone. That's an electioneering zone. But having that electioneering zone helps prevent against intimidating conduct. Um, And we we recently put out a series of guides, um, both about federal law and state law in 10 different states to talk about all these different protections. But, you know, there are rules governing poll watchers. There are rules governing poll workers. There are rules about electioneering. There are many specific types of conduct that are regulated by the law in order to avoid intimidation. But none of those things should be seen as a limitation on the law against intimidation. The law against intimidation says if what you're doing intimidates voters, then you're violating the law. Sean, I wanted to ask you, you know, you, bearing in mind what you've said about the relative rarity of, of voter intimidation, the likes of which we, we've talked about here, what would you say to somebody who 
does witness it or is the victim of it? What should that person do in the face of it? The first thing they should do is, if they're at a polling place, alert poll workers, alert election officials. Um, the se- second thing they should do is call the election protection hotline. Um, that's 866-R-VOTE in English, but there are uh, hotlines in a number of other languages as well um, to make sure that um, the many organizations like the Brennan Center that participate in the Election Protection Coalition are aware of what's happening. Um, and, uh, you know, if someone actually feels that they're threatened with violence, then they may want to alert law enforcement. But generally speaking, talking to your poll workers and your election officials first gives them the opportunity to decide when it's appropriate to bring law enforcement into the picture. 866-R-VOTE, you said, was was the number there. Um, David, I want to ask you how accurate the way we track voter intimidation is. Do we, do we have a good database for it? Do we have a good sense of, of how much it's happening and how widely it's happening, where it's happening? Well, I don't think we have a really great database for it because as it didn't, it didn't really occur that much in the last 50 years or so. Of course, when the Voting Rights Act was first enacted in 1965, we saw... Um, a large number of cases of voter intimidation, largely racially motivated all across the country and particularly concentrated in the Deep South. Um, we had evolved since that time, thanks to a lot of factors, including aggressive enforcement against voter intimidation by the Justice Department and, and states. And uh, unfortunately, we've taken a little bit of a dip since 2020 in the face of the never-ending lies about the election tens of millions of individuals who've been encased in a media bubble where they're constantly hearing the lies that an election was stolen despite the fact that it was the most secure election we've ever had and it's been verified many, many times over. That's creating a really unstable situation. So this is a relatively new, at least in modern history, occurrence. That being said, we have the media covering this very well. I think, uh, you know, whether it's Yvonne in Arizona and her colleagues all over the country are covering this extraordinarily well. We have a much more educated media about these issues and shows like this. And so I think we're hearing about most of these cases and it's remarkable that we're not hearing about more because I think we would if they were out there. So what this tells me is that these are relatively isolated. They absolutely should be reported. They should be investigated and prosecuted aggressively when they happen. But for most voters, almost all voters, they're not gonna experience anything like this. And so they should go to the polls and expect to have a convenient and safe and secure experience. Bearing in mind that that long history, not having dealt with this really for the last 50 years or so, um, talk, if you would, David, just about how things changed in in 2020. We've talked a bit about it, but uh, we certainly talked with Yvonne just about how the the laws have changed. But when it comes to how big an issue voter intimidation was was then, uh, give us a sense of it. Well, prior to 2020, we we had really not seen much voter intimidation lately. It was something that both parties largely rejected. There might be a, you know, a few episodes here or there, but generally it was something we didn't really see. The 2020 election was unusual for a lot of reasons, um, not just because of COVID. We also saw the highest turnout of any election in American history by every measure we possibly have. And so that was that was a great achievement in American democratic history democratic process history, that we somehow managed all of that turnout, more than 20 million more ballots than we'd ever seen. But it appears that particularly candidates who lost in that environment, particularly the losing presidential candidate, don't want to see that in some ways. And so they have inspired this movement to deny elections and to attack the professionals who run elections. And in some ways that bleeds over into voters, despite the fact that 
Republicans actually did remarkably well in the 2020 election with the exception of the presidential election. They won down ballot, exceeding their margin, uh, uh, enlarging their margins in places in state legislatures. They won virtually every toss-up House race in that election. They won all over the ballot except in the presidential race. And yet tens of millions of people believe there was a conspiracy, presumably by Democrats, to give Republicans all of those victories. What a play message that we got from Shannon in Florida. In all years past, I've done mail-in voting. Um, Really appreciate the chance to have the ballot with me. That way I can research the websites that I trust and take some time to come to a confident decision. Historically, I would put it in one of the street side drop boxes or into the mail, but not this year. This year, I needed greater confidence that my vote was going to be into the right hands at the right time. So I just left a early voting spot in Pompano Beach where I hand-delivered my ballot to the early voting place. Uh, Sean, let me turn to you first. What should we take away from a comment like that, this feeling that a voter wants greater confidence and therefore wants to make sure that that ballot ends up in the hands of, of another person. Is, is that, as you see it, a level of due diligence? Is it unnecessary given what you've described in terms of the infrastructure that we have? How should we interpret what we heard there from Shannon? I mean, I think that voters should vote the way that they feel confident voting, mm. to be very clear. So voters should come up with a plan for how they're going to cast their ballot. And it should be one that they're comfortable with um, and one that is accessible to them. Um, and if Shannon decided that this was the one, the method she felt most comfortable with, then, you know, great. All I care about is that she went and cast her ballot. But I do worry, um, about the fact that people do feel uncomfortable casting their ballots in ways that are perfectly secure. Um, because to me, it shows just how much this mis and disinformation has, um, penetrated, um, you know, all, all our collective understanding of the way our democracy works. Um, it's, perfectly secure and not a problem to go drop your ballot off in a Dropbox. It's fine to put it in the mail. It's fine to bring it to um, an early voting location. It's fine to go vote in person. Um, We have a lot of infrastructure in place for all of these systems, and it's a shame that people are being made to feel uncomfortable about using any of them, Uh, but people should do what they feel comfortable with. I just want to say, you know, we heard Yvonne talking earlier uh, about um, the, the infrastructure that we have um, with regard to each of these different methods of voting mm-hmm. and that people, I, I think people should feel um, comfortable using any of them, but it is troubling to me that there might be um, a lot of people who feel uncomfortable now because of conspiracy theories that have been um, you know, circulated about the way that our elections work. Let's step back here in the last few minutes that we have to talk about what you're addressing there. And I think it's it's so critical. And I imagine that you and your colleagues at the Brennan Center spend a lot of time talking about this, the, the erosion uh, of public trust and faith in democracy. And I want to ask each of you, and I'll start with you first, Sean, how we begin to do that. So we have, we have this election to get through tomorrow. Um, but describe the, the magnitude of that work and, and what you would recommend, what we need to do to rebuild that trust. Yeah. um, Democracy doesn't work unless we all believe in it, right? This is a system that we all have to have trust in. And it's a shame that there are people who are actively trying to undermine public faith in our elections um, and then use the fact that they have been successful in undermining faith in public elections to justify more restrictive policies that then 
further undermine faith in, in elections. We as a nation need to um, project that and to embrace um, democracy if we want to our democracy to survive. I think, as David has pointed out repeatedly today, um, in many senses, America is doing that right now. Uh, voters are turning out at historic levels, and that's fantastic. And that shows that people, despite all this misinformation, do still believe in the system and that they see the importance of participating in it. And I hope that after multiple elections in a row with extremely high turnout um, and without any major disruption, that people um, begin to see through these lies that are being spread about our elections. We have to collectively decide that we want to embrace a democratic system. Um, so some of that is um, done by, you know, what we're doing right now, having a public conversation about just how safe and secure our elections are and how enthusiastic people should be about going to vote. Um, some of it is about going out and voting to show that we believe in the system. And some of it is about um, going and talking to our representatives, to our election officials, and letting them know that this is an issue that we care about. Um, people who are in elected office really do care about what their constituents think. I know sometimes it feels sort of um, maybe it feels to people that that's not mm -hmm. the case, but I frequently talk to election officials and I talk to lawmakers in state legislatures and Congress, and these folks care to hear from their voters. They need to know that this is a top priority issue for people. Um, and I think they've heard that. I think there's a reason why the number one legislative priority for the, um, for Congress in this Congress was reforming our democracy and strengthening the Voting Rights Act. It's unfortunate it didn't get across the finish line despite the majority support. But I think that reflects, um, you know, the fact that a majority of voters really do care about this, really want an expansive democracy and are telling their representatives that. And we just need to keep heading in that direction um, in order to fight back against those who would um, who would essentially deny the value of democracy um, and you know reject the outcome of our elections. That's Sean Morales-Doyle. He's the director of the Voting Rights Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. Join me along with David Becker, the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Today's producer is Arfa Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.